Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, August 28th, 2020. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This program, because I'm concerned about our internet connectivity this evening, this program is being pre-recorded. Right now it's only about 5 p.m. This evening we shall present part nine of our series of commentaries on the wisdom of Solomon, and it is titled Everlasting Contempt. Here, out of necessity, I am going to repeat some concepts which we have already expounded on to one degree or another earlier in this commentary on wisdom, and quite often elsewhere in our commentaries at Christogenia, but with the hope that Solomon himself helps to clarify them for us. However, we believe that these concepts, having to do with death, resurrection, and the eternal Adamic spirit, are of a crucial importance to a proper understanding of our Christian faith. Since the beginning of Wisdom chapter 2, Solomon has been contrasting the attitudes and actions of the ungodly and their ultimate fate with the attitudes and actions of the righteous and their ultimate fate, alternating back and forth between the two as he proceeds. In that process, one prominent feature of his comparison is the attitude of disdain which the ungodly have towards the righteous and, as a result, how the righteous are mistreated and persecuted by them. Another feature is the parallels with the ministry and gospel of Christ, for which we have viewed the righteous man in Solomon's example as both a type and a prophecy of the Messiah. Discussing the later portion of Wisdom chapter 4, we began to see how Solomon had described the reward of the righteous and how the ungodly respond to that reward when they see the righteous attain to it. Since that theme continues into chapter 5, at the end of our last presentation, we already presented and commented upon the first two verses, which we shall now repeat as they helped to conclude what we had seen in chapter 4. But they are also an important introduction to what we shall see here as we proceed through chapter 5 as the chapter divisions themselves are artificial. From Wisdom chapter 5, verse 1. Then the righteous man stand, then shall the righteous man stand in great boldness before the face of such as have afflicted him, and made no account of his labors. When they see it, they shall be troubled with terrible fear, and shall be amazed at the strangeness of his salvation, so far beyond all that they had looked for. As Paul of Tarsus had professed in chapter 2 of his first epistle to the Corinthians, but as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man, the things which Yahweh God has prepared for them that love him. Paul was most likely paraphrasing what is found in Isaiah chapter 64. 
where we read in verse 4, For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard, nor perceived by the ear, neither has the eye seen, O God, besides thee, what he has prepared for him that waits for him. In the Septuagint, the passage ends with them that wait for mercy. Later in this chapter, the vanity of the hope of the ungodly is described. As they spent their lives trusting in themselves, seeking only to edify themselves in the fulfillment of their base desires. This same theme, where the ungodly despise the righteous, and in spite of that, the righteous are greatly rewarded, is also found in the 31st Psalm, attributed to David as he prays to Yahweh and says, Let the lying lips be put to silence, which speak grievous things proudly and contemptuously against the righteous. Oh, how great is thy goodness, addressing God himself which thou hast laid up for them that fear thee, which thou hast wrought for them that trust in thee before the sons of men. We had already related the opening verse of this chapter to the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 12, where it says of the Messiah, that they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Speaking of those who had sided with his enemies, but this is also a more general statement that the ungodly have a general tendency to disregard the works of the righteous as they live. However, when they witness the reward of the righteous, they shall come to realize their error and lament the error of their own ways. However, that revelation is also an assertion that they live on after this life in order for them to lament their errors and their sinful ways. As earlier in Solomon's comparison, they have even been charged with the killing of the righteous. So for that reason, we had compared this passage to a statement which is found in Isaiah chapter 29. And it speaks of the sin and the punishment of the children of Israel, where it says that, therefore, thus saith Yahweh, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Jacob shall not now be ashamed, neither shall his face wax pale. But when he, meaning Jacob, sees his children, the work of mine hands in the midst of him, they shall sanctify my name and sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and shall fear the God of Israel. They also that erred in spirit shall come to understanding, and they that murmured shall learn doctrine. And where we see a reference to Abraham, Yahweh who redeemed Abraham, we have an indication that this mercy is granted upon the sons of Jacob on behalf of the promises made to Abraham. The circumstances described indicate that Yahweh in Isaiah must have been speaking of the same judgment which Solomon describes here in Wisdom. 
So the ungodly sinners, among those who have been, who have passed from this life, shall learn doctrine. As Solomon is also describing here, even if it is too late for them to seek to please God in doing good works. With this, it must also be evident that salvation itself is not by works, but that there is a reward for them that do good and remain faithful to God, as Paul of Tarsus had often explained. Now to proceed from where we last left off in verse 3 of Wisdom chapter 5. And they, repenting and groaning for anguish of spirit, a reference to the ungodly, who in verses 1 and 2 were pictured as being in awe of the salvation of the righteous. And they, repenting and groaning for anguish of spirit, shall say within themselves, This was he whom we had sometimes in derision, and a proverb of reproach. We fools, they admit that they are fools, and we will see other testimonies of that when we comment on this passage. We fools accounted his life madness and his end to be without honor. How is he numbered among the children of God and his lot is among the saints? David had expressed this same sentiment but from a different perspective in the 39th Psalm where he wrote in a prayer, And now, Yahweh, what wait I for, what wait I for, or what do I wait for? My hope is in thee. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. Unrepentant sinners are frequently delivered into the hands of the wicked. So David pleads for forgiveness, that he not suffer that fate. David here also calls the ungodly foolish, just as Solomon in wisdom have them themselves admitting that they are fools. Here in wisdom, we see that in the end, the ungodly are compelled to admit their foolishness, faced with the reality of the consequences of their actions, while the righteous certainly shall be rewarded in spite of the base desire by which the wicked had sought to make a reproach of them. However, where we see the exclamation, how is he numbered among the children of God, here in verse 5 of Wisdom chapter 3, that is only a reference to his future estate among the children of God and does not express the concept that one is a child of God only by his own righteousness. Now Solomon continues to describe the admissions which the ungodly shall be compelled to profess. Therefore have we erred, and that word is planeo, it means literally gone astray or wandered. Therefore have we erred from the way of truth, and the light of righteousness has not shined unto us, and the sun of righteousness rose not upon us. 
there is a similar allegory in the opening verses of Malachi chapter 4, where we read of the punishment of the wicked and of the hope for the righteous. For behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yeah, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day to come shall burn them up, saith Yahweh of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall, as sheep in the field and in, in the stalls. So here in wisdom, the ungodly lament that the Son of Righteousness had not risen upon them. Since even the children of Israel are to be treated as the wicked if they do not follow their God. Examples supporting this conclusion are found in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul had asked, And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what share the faithful with the faithless? Then in 1 Timothy chapter 5 he wrote, Now if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially of kin, he has denied the faith and is inferior to one of the faithless. Earlier in wisdom, the ungodly were portrayed as having despised the weak, the orphans, and the widows for their own gain and as having neglected the righteous, their own people, and forsaken the Lord. Wisdom chapter 3 verse 10. So they fit the same example of which Paul had written. They provide for themselves, not for their kin. They're to be accounted even as inferior to one of those who are not of the faith, the faithless. Faithless doesn't necessarily mean an unbeliever. Faithless can mean someone who's not included in the faith which Abraham had, who can only be the people of his seed with whom the covenants were made. Faithless simply means without faith, and that could mean not being included in the faith as well as not believing it. In that same manner, Solomon continues to speak of the ungodly, explaining that they shall have to confess that we wearied ourselves in the way of wickedness and destruction. Yeah, we have gone through deserts where there lay no way, but as for the way of the Lord, we have not known it. And this verse would be transmit, translated more literally. We filled ourselves on the paths of lawlessness and destruction. We traveled through deserts impassable. But the way of the Lord, or the way of Yahweh, we have not known. It is likely that the King James translators had taken a word which means filled and translated it as wearied, because it is evident that the fulfillment of worldly desires is vanity, and one shall indeed be wearied in any such pursuit, since in the end it is all for naught. There is no purpose to it. Then the King James translators made a phrase, where there lay no way, out of a single word, abatis, which is literally unsteppable and therefore untrodden or 
impassable. Since there have always been such sinners, here it must be impassable because this way many had tried to get through and I'm sure that they all have failed. Trying to secure their lives by seeking after riches and amassing riches to themselves while turning their backs on the Lord and turning their backs on their own kin. This is the very lesson of the parable of the unrighteous steward found in Luke chapter 16, which may go unnoticed because the King James Version and others have translated it so poorly. After the unrighteous steward is caught trying to ingratiate the men who were indebted to his master by writing off large portions of their debt for them so that those men would owe him their favor, he was caught and removed from his position as steward, at which he lamented the prospect of being impoverished. Then upon making that example, as it reads in the Christogenian New Testament, Christ had inquired of his disciples, where we read, And I say to you, shall you make for yourselves friends from the riches of unrighteousness, that when you should fail, they may receive you into eternal dwellings? The wicked steward had forsaken his Lord, his worldly master, in an attempt to secure his own future as the ungodly here in wisdom are portrayed as forsaking Yahweh their Lord so that they could amass worldly riches for themselves. The parable also reveals that the unrighteous steward, in this case, was one of the sons of this age and not one of the sons of light. And therefore, he would be expected to act in the manner in which he did. But here in wisdom, that way is described as being impassable for the ungodly among the children of Yahweh who would choose to follow it. For that reason, as Christ asked that, his, that question of his disciples, he asked them if those who would be their friends on account of their unrighteous rewards could ever receive them into eternal dwellings, something which is only possible for Yahweh. So it is indeed an impassable way. Therefore, a man should instead seek righteousness, doing right and hoping to be a friend of God. Of the sinners in Israel, we read in Jeremiah chapter 5, Therefore I said, surely these are poor, they are foolish, for they know not the way of the Lord, nor the judgment of their God. I will get me unto the great men, and will speak unto them, for they have known the way of Yahweh, and the judgment of their God. But these have altogether broken the yoke, and burst the bonds. Wherefore a lion out of the forest shall slay them. And a wolf of the evening shall spoil them. A leopard shall watch over their cities. Everyone that goes out thence shall be torn in pieces. Because their transgressions are many and their backslidings are increased. Later in the chapter, 
such sin is attributed, attributed to the entire nation, where the word of Yahweh says, For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have dealt treacherously against me, saith the Lord. And we include this example to show that it is Israel who sinned in this manner, and they still do, without a doubt. So likewise, we see in chapter 22 that the children of Israel had sinned in the manner in which Solomon had described the ungodly here in wisdom. Behold, the princes of Israel, every one were in thee to their power to shed blood. In thee have they set light by father and mother. In the midst of thee have they dealt by oppression with the stranger. In thee, or the sojourner, in thee have they vexed the fatherless and the widow. Thou hast despised mine holy things and hast profaned my Sabbaths. These Sabbaths are profaned when sinners endeavor to keep them, having righteousness only for a pretense. We must not forget the fact that the ungodly here, as it was written of them in Wisdom chapter 3, are those who had neglected the righteous and forsaken the Lord. And therefore, it cannot be ignored that Solomon is also describing Israelites, just like Ezekiel and Jeremiah were, where he speaks of the ungodly in these later chapters. Now we have already read from Malachi chapter 4, where Yahweh had declared that all the proud and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And here in Wisdom, Solomon also describes how the ungodly shall have to admit that their wicked actions were a result of their pride. What has pride profited us? This is a dialogue which Solomon places in the mouths of the wicked because he is asserting that in the last days, after they pass from this earth, they will have to meet this judgment and they will have to make these admissions. This is repentance to recognize your sins, whether you are dead yet or still living. Every Israelite is going to be compelled to do this at one time or the other. What has pride, which is Hooper Athania, which is arrogance or haughtiness or pride, what has pride profited us or what good has riches with our vaunting, Alazoniah, vaunting or boasting? What good has riches with our vaunting brought us? And that word Alazoniah is more literally arrogance, from which come vaunting and boasting. So the second half of this verse may be translated more literally. Or what has wealth with arrogance helped us? The King James Version took a word that means helped and translated it as brought. Here in Wisdom, near the beginning of this comparison of the ungodly and the righteous, Solomon had described the ungodly as forsaking their own people and attempting to establish their own law by their own power, by which they may then oppress the weak, the elderly, the widows, and the righteous 
for their own profit. This is seen in part in Wisdom chapter 2, where the ungodly are portrayed as having said, let us oppress the poor righteous man. Let us not spare the widow, nor reverence the ancient gray hairs of the aged. Let our strength be the law of justice, for that which is feeble is found to be worth nothing. Reading the 10th Psalm, we also find that the reason for this behavior is pride, where it makes an imprecation. The wicked in his pride does persecute the poor. Let them be taken in the devices that they have imagined. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire and blesses the covetous whom Yahweh abhors, just as the unrighteous steward of the parable had tried to do. He tried to bless the covetous to let his friends, who were evidently covetous or they would not have agreed, to let them write off large portions of their debt to his master, and he would cook the books on their behalf. Sounds like a Jew to me. In verse 4 of the 10th Psalm, the wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. We may have translated that. God is not in any of his thoughts. And that's why he oppresses the righteous and persecutes the poor because of his own pride. Throughout the book of Job, the Psalms, and the other prophetic books of Scripture, the development of this attitude of the ungodly is consistently attributed to pride. Another example is found in the 12th Psalm, also attributed to David. Help Yahweh, David asking Yahweh for help. For the godly man ceases, for the faithful fail from among the children of men. They have all turned to their own ways. They speak vanity, everyone with his neighbor. With flattering lips and with a double heart do they speak. Yahweh shall cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things. Who have said, with our tongue will we prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? By elevating ourselves above our brethren, imagining for ourselves to be better than our own people, we are actually prideful and boasting against Yahweh our God, which is vanity indeed. But then there follows a promise of deliverance from such men. For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now will I arise, saith Yahweh. I will set him in safety from him that puffs at him, from him who boasts or vaunts against him. This same pride of the ungodly, who would accumulate riches for themselves while forsaking their own people, or even by taking advantage of them, is found in another parable which is recorded in Luke chapter 12, where after finding two brothers who were fighting with one another over their dead father's estate, Christ spoke to his disciples, and he spoke a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man 
brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for, for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now we must not be misunderstood. Men who seek righteousness are not compelled to take a vow of poverty. They are not compelled to stop working to support their house. There is nothing wrong with accumulating or possessing wealth. It is manifest in Ecclesiastes, another work by Solomon, because I do believe that this book of wisdom was written by Solomon, that if one labors and is able to maintain the fruits of his labor, that is a blessing from God. In Genesis chapter 13, we read, And Abraham went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. But what we must understand, if we have wealth, is found in Deuteronomy chapter 8, where the word of Yahweh says, Thou shalt remember Yahweh thy God, for it is he that gives thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he sware unto thy fathers as it is this day. So a man should treat his own life accordingly. The unrighteous steward never had God in the first place and acted according to his own character. The rich man in the parable of Luke chapter 12 forgot Yahweh when he considered what he should do with his riches. But the ungodly, which Solomon describes here, had forsaken Yahweh in order to enrich themselves by oppressing their own people in their endeavor to enrich themselves. So now, in a lengthy series of similar allegories, which liken the transience of pride to the passing of a shadow or a ship, a bird, or an arrow. Solomon portrays the ungodly as answering their own question concerning the profit which their pride and their vaunting had brought to them. From verse 9 of Wisdom chapter 5. All those things are passed away like a shadow and as a post, literally a message, that hasted by or literally a message that was neglected or escaped notice. And as a ship that passes over the waves of the water, which when it has gone by, the trace thereof cannot be found, neither the pathway of the keel in the waves. Or as a bird has flown through the air, there is no token of her way to be found. 
But the light air being beaten with the stroke of her wings and parted with the violent noise and motion of them is passed through and therein afterwards no sign where she went is to be found. And literally that should be no sign of the approach is to be found. But that's okay. It's a good translation. Or like as when an arrow is shot at a mark, it parts the air, which immediately cometh together again, so that a man cannot know where it went through. Literally, so that its passage is unknown, because you can see the arrow strike a target, but you can't tell from the air where it came from. And that's the vanity of seeking riches unrighteously. Once again, speaking of the sinners in Israel, we read in Isaiah chapter 2, For the day of Yahweh of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty, and upon everyone that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low. Then later in Isaiah, we once again read, of the vanity of their pride. In chapter 28, Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower. And here, awaiting their judgment, and having witnessed the reward of the righteous, the ungodly are described as having recognized their pride and their wickedness, and having realized that they shall have no reward for the way in which they had lived their lives. So Solomon continues and depicts them as saying, Even so, we, in like manner, as soon as we were born, began to draw to our end, and had no sign of virtue to show, but were consumed in our own wickedness. Now the King James translators rendered this verse in a manner that makes it appear that these ungodly men began on a path to wickedness because that was their character, their intrinsic nature. But this translation is misleading. We would translate the verse to read, Thusly also, and this is a very literal translation, Thusly also, we having been born, had failed, that phrase, it's just a word that means had failed, the King James translated as began to draw our end. As soon as we, born, as soon as we are born, we are going to fail in one way or another. All men sin and fall short of the glory of God. Thusly also, we having been born, had failed, and surely... Of virtue we had no sign to display, but we were consumed in our wickedness because they chased after their fleshly nature rather than searching out the spirit. After David had sinned against Uriah and was informed of this sin by Nathan the prophet, he responded by admitting in a prayer to Yahweh his God that he was a sinner from the womb, as it is recorded in the 51st Psalm. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. 
Against thee, thee only, have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. In other words, David is acknowledging his sin and the fact that Yahweh, in his word and in his judgments, are, is justified because David knows he's a sinner. So he's not going to blame God for his punishment because it's David that sinned. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. David begging for forgiveness. So David acknowledged the sinful nature of the flesh, which Paul of Tarsus would later describe. But what distinguishes David from the ungodly whom Solomon describes here is that he sought repentance in his own lifetime. As Paul had written to Timothy in chapter 5 of his first epistle to him, some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment, and some men may follow after. The ungodly here have no excuse. As Solomon explained, I believe it was in chapter 2 or chapter 3, that the righteous whom they persecuted had informed them of their sins and was intractable to them. And that's why they had to get rid of him. That's why they had to kill him. Nathan informed David of his sins. But David didn't want to kill Nathan to cover his sin. He immediately repented. That's the difference. In Romans chapter 6, Paul had discussed the struggle between the fleshly and spiritual natures of man. And in our commentary on that chapter, the two natures of Adamic man, May of 2014, we said in part that the Adamic race, here to learn what sin is, is written into the book of life, and they shall learn indeed. In the end, every Adamic knee shall bow to Yahweh. And we drew those conclusions not only from chapter 6 of Romans, but also from what we had studied in chapter 5. Later, in Romans chapter 8, after describing the learning process induced by the desire to sin in contrast with a knowledge of the law, Paul had concluded, for the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who had subjected the same in hope, by reason of him, meaning God, who had subjected the same, meaning the creation, in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. By saying creature, a word which would have been better translated as creation, Paul was referring to the specifically to the Adamic creation, man as a particular creation, as he contrasts it to other things which Yahweh had created 
and says any other. He refers to any other creation in the subsequent verses of the chapter. So that proves where Paul says any other creation, comparing man to other aspects of God's creation, that proves that where he says creature here, he only refers to the Adamic creation. With this, Solomon also agreed in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, where he declared, and I'm speaking about the subjection of man to vanity, which Paul declares in Romans chapter 8, verse 20. Solomon agreed in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, where he declared in verse 10, I have seen the travail which God has given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. You exercise yourself in something so that you can learn from it. So there is value in failure and vanity and sin as man is expected to learn by it. But those who fail and sin without having done any good shall suffer for it as they have no sign of virtue to display as the ungodly themselves had admitted here. And we see that that is one of the things which the ungodly shall have to confess. The truth of this assertion is made evident by Paul once again in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where he said, For another foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. There will either be gold, silver, and precious stones left after the fire because they don't burn in the fire, or there will be nothing because wood, hay, and stubble will indeed disappear. So the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abides, which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. He will be tried, but he will be saved. Therefore, we see that even the ungodly here are preserved, although because there is no sign of virtue for them to display, they shall have no reward. It is this salvation without reward which we have likened to the resurrection of everlasting contempt, which we see in Daniel chapter 12, where it says, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Then at the end of our last presentation, we also liken this to those who remain outside of the city of God as it is described in Revelation chapter 22, where we read, Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they might have right to the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates into the city. For outside are dogs and sorcerers, 
and whoremongers, and murderers, and idolaters, and whosoever loves and makes a lie. As we also said, since where we see this described, it is evident that all of the enemies of Christ have already been destroyed. Then perhaps, perhaps, because there are other possible interpretations, perhaps this describes the everlasting contempt of Daniel chapter 12, and the reward of the righteous is the right to enter into the city of God. So the hope of the ungodly, what they had worked for over the course of their lives, is gone. And in the end, they are left with nothing, as all of their work shall be burned in the fire. Now Solomon describes the result of what the ungodly themselves have been portrayed as having to confess. For the hope of the ungodly is like dust that is blown away with the wind, like a thin froth that is driven away with the storm, like as the smoke which is dispersed here and there with the tempest and passes away as the remembrance of a guest that tarries but a day. Notice that Solomon did not say that the ungodly themselves would be like dust that is blown away with the wind, but only that their hopes, referring to the hopes which would be found, re referring to the fact that their hopes would be found as vanity, which they had expressed, which they had expressed during their lifetimes those hopes for riches and the satisfying of their own lusts that they had expressed during their lifetimes. That is what would be like dust that is blown away with the wind, but not the ungodly themselves. In the 78th Psalm, Asaph declares the importance of the law and the covenant. For he established a testimony in Jacob, and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make that they should make known, make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God, not in these vain things that the ungodly had set their hopes in that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and might not be as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright, and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. <laughs> we have already cited the parable of the rich man, which is recorded in Luke chapter 12. After having imparted that parable to his disciples and warned that those with wealth should be rich towards God, Yahshua Christ had told them how they should act in a manner which is contrary to the arrogance that the rich man had displayed, where he said, or where it is written, and he said to his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life that ye shall eat, neither for the body what ye shall put on. The life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, 
which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. How much more are you better than the fowls or birds? And which of you taking thought can add to his stature one cubit? If you then be not able to do that thing which is least, why take ye thought for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not, they don't spin yarn. And yet I say unto you, that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothed the grass, which is today in the field, and tomorrow it is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And seek not ye what you shall eat or what you shall drink, neither be ye of doubtful mind. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after. And your Father knows that you have need of these things. But rather, seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. That doesn't necessarily mean that you don't work for them, but they shall be added unto you. The rich man. The rich man was not at fault simply for being wealthy. But he was at fault because he wanted to hold on to the wealth, which was even beyond his own capacity to maintain. Building larger storehouses in his arrogance, he believed that he would grow even wealthier in spite of not taking thought as to the will of his God. He may have taken care for the less fortunate of his own kin, for the poor, or for his hired servants, and held most of his wealth. However, he cared or he only thought of himself. The Apostle James had warned the wealthy in chapter 4 of his epistle. Those who had accumulated their riches by taking advantage of the less fortunate. Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as if it were fire. And of course, James is speaking allegorically of their judgment in the last time. So he says, Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold, and this shows this is an example James used to show that they took advantage of those less fortunate. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. They could have paid their workers better and been a little less rich, and they wouldn't be judged so harshly. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just, and he does not resist you. And this warning from James is a summary of much of what we had read concerning the attitudes and actions of the ungodly up to this point in the wisdom of Solomon. But James's warning was one of only temporal judgment and not of the fate of everlasting contempt, 
which they would be in danger to suffer after passing from this life. Now Solomon once again returns to further describe and contrast the reward of the righteous. But the righteous live forevermore. Their reward also is with the Lord, or Yahweh. And the care of them is with the Most High. Therefore shall they receive a glorious kingdom and a beautiful crown from Yahweh's hand. For with his right hand shall he cover them, and with his arm shall he protect them. As Solomon had said in Wisdom chapter 2, For if the just man be the Son of God, he will help him and deliver him from the hand of his enemies. And then in Wisdom chapter 3, But the souls of the righteous are in the hand of God, and there shall no torment touch them. Therefore Christ had also said in John chapter 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, who gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. So they can't even pluck themselves out of the hand of God with their sin, because Yahweh has promised to redeem the children of Israel from death and to save them in spite of their sins. Yet while Solomon contrasts the kingdom which the righteous shall receive with the empty hands of the ungodly, that does not mean that the ungodly shall cease to exist. As Solomon had also said in Wisdom chapter 2, for God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. Even being resurrected to everlasting contempt, it is evident that one shall exist for eternity. The city of God, which is described in Revelation chapter 22, has upon its gates the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Then where it says in that chapter that they that do his commandments, that they might have right to the tree of life, may enter in through the gates into the city. It is evident that even then, Entrance into the city is limited only to those Israelites who had done such things. Therefore, we find sinners must remain outside of its gates. But perhaps there is still a greater purpose, one which has not yet been revealed, as it also describes the tree of life with 12 types of fruit. Ostensibly, one type of for each of the children of Israel. And there it says that the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. The King James adds the word were there rather than are. <laughs> this hasn't happened yet. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. If the Adamic man is here in this world to learn what sin is, there must be a greater purpose for that lesson in the world to come, even for those that have sinned. Otherwise, as we read from Isaiah chapter 28, or as we already read from Isaiah chapter 28, it would be useless for they who erred in spirit to come to understanding. It would be useless for they who murmured to learn doctrine. 
We have also explained earlier in our commentary on wisdom and elsewhere that what is righteous is declared by Yahweh God and not according to the perception of man. So in Isaiah chapter 45, we read another promise from verse 17, and I'll skip a couple of verses just for sake of brevity. Israel shall be saved in Yahweh with an everlasting salvation. Ye shall not be ashamed nor confounded, world without end. And this is after the children of Israel had been deported for some of history's most heinous crimes, sacrificing your children in the fires to Moloch, for example. So we read in verse 19, I have not spoken in secret. In a dark place of, of, of the earth, I said not unto the seed of Jacob, seek ye me in vain. I, Yahweh, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. So if Yahweh justifies the children of Israel, regardless of their sins, we must perceive them as righteous or as justified because Yahweh God declares that he justifies the children of Israel, as we shall see. Then we read in verse 21, Tell ye, and bring them near. Yeah, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I, Yahweh? And there is no God else besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, a reference to scattered Israel. For I am God, and there is none else. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. In other words, it shall not fail. It won't come back on God. It will come true. That unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Surely shall one say, in Yahweh have I righteousness and strength. Because you can't make that claim from your own deeds. Even to him shall men come. And all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. In Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified. That means to be accounted as righteous. And shall glory. If Yahweh alone declares things that are right, then, of course, only he can determine who is righteous. Paul also explained the same thing where he wrote in Romans chapter 3, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Being justified, which is rendered righteous by Yahweh God, according to Isaiah chapter 45, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Yahshua, whom God has sent forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, that should be in the Christogenian New Testament for the remission of forthcoming sins. Through the forbearance of God to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believes in Yahshua. As the word of Yahweh says in Jeremiah chapter 33, and I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return and will build them as at the first, and I will cleanse them 
from all their iniquity whereby they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities whereby they have sinned and whereby they have transgressed against me. So if Yahweh declares all of Israel righteous in spite of their sins, why do men continue to argue against God and wish to see vengeance against their own brethren? Christ also explained this as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 7. Judge not that ye not be judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure you measure, it shall be measured to you again. Christians must judge according to the law. But there Christ was describing hypocritical judgment. In Matthew chapter 18, there is a parable which illustrates the hypocrisy of a servant who is forgiven his debts but who does not forgive his fellow servants in turn. And the end of that servant is worse than the beginning. Solomon now changes the topic once again to discuss the vengeance of God against his enemies. Here we shall only begin to describe what he wrote in reference to that, because we're only going to present one more verse this evening, and this goes on for several I thought it better to leave it for our next presentation. He shall take to him, speaking of Yahweh God, he shall take to him his jealousy for complete armor, because he's jealous for the children of Israel, as he stated many times in the Old Testament, and make the creature his weapon for the revenge of his enemies. As for the word creature, as Paul had also used it in Romans chapter 8, it refers to a particular creation. The Greek word is kathesis, and it is more frequently translated as creation, especially in the King James Version. But while in the context of Paul's epistle, it seems to refer to the wider Adamic creation. Here, in the wisdom of Solomon, he seemed to have used it even more narrowly, of the children of Israel alone. This is made evident in Wisdom chapter 19. We're speaking particularly of the children of Israel at the time of the Exodus, in contrast to the old Adamic world. He wrote, for the whole creature, the whole creation, in his proper kind, was fashioned again anew. So he's speaking about the Adamic creation being fashioned again anew, serving the peculiar commandments that were given unto them, that thy children might be kept without hurt. Those commandments were only given to the children of Israel, that they might be kept without hurt. And they were given at Mount Sinai in connection with the events of the Exodus, the time which Solomon was describing in Wisdom chapter 19. So it is that to which Solomon was referring. One reason for the difference between Solomon and Paul is that by Paul's time, the children of Israel were 
the greatest portion of the what was remaining of the Adamic race. Corroborating this is the word of Yahweh as it is written in Isaiah chapter 43, corroborating the fact that by creature, both here and in Romans 8, only the children of Israel are meant, is what we read in Isaiah chapter 43 in verse 1. But now thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. Then further on in that same chapter, speaking of those same scattered children of Israel, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, even everyone that is called by my name. For I have created him for my glory. I have formed him. Yeah, I have made him. So by the time of Isaiah, Yahweh is taking credit only for having created the children of Israel. He's not taking credit for creating anyone else by this point in history. All the other nations are corrupt or are on their way to corruption. So that creation, which Solomon defines later in his book, which is that of the children of Israel, must be the creation which shall be the weapon that Yahweh God uses to execute revenge against his enemies. And Paul of Tarsus said the same thing in his second epistle to the Corinthians in chapter 10. However, Paul was also warning them that their present struggle is a spiritual one, which they had to overcome first. So he wrote from verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And then this last verse we shall cite from that passage, verse 6, corroborates what we read here in the wisdom of Solomon, where Yahweh said he will make the creature, meaning the creation of Israel, his weapon for the revenge upon his enemies. Paul says that once these Corinthians bring every thought to the obedience of Christ, that they will be having in readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So once again, the wisdom of Solomon and Paul of Tarsus, corroborate one another. We have already cited the 78th Psalm in relation to the importance of the law. That Psalm also describes the fact that the disobedience can have no share in victory, even in the victory of Yahweh, where right from where we had left off, Asaph goes on to say in the very next verse, the children of Ephraim being armed and carrying bows turned back in the day of battle. They kept not the covenant of God and refused to walk in his law and forgot his works and his wonders that he showed them. This was spoken in relation to the captivity of Ephraim and therefore we see why the tribes of Israel went into that captivity having been defeated by the pagan Assyrians. 
So without keeping the commandments of Christ, without keeping the commandments of our God, we ourselves shall never see victory over the enemies of Yahweh our God, who are also our enemies and who are presently destroying us. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.